0: Hi, and welcome to Islington Baptist Church's podcast. This is where you'll find our weekly Bible talks from our church service every Sunday. We hope you enjoy and you might like to leave us a review or rating. In the first half of 2020, something big started happening around the world. And I know what you're all thinking, but no, I'm not talking about COVID and the flow-on effects. Obviously, that was big, but I'm talking about something else that happened. Uh, In the protests that followed the killing of black American man George Floyd by a police officer, something new started happening. Statues of men who had been honoured as community leaders and founding fathers around America and the UK were defaced, uh, pulled down and thrown away. Why? For their involvement in the African-American slave trade uh, or mistreatment of Indigenous peoples. It was part of a renewed, heightened phase of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, And it wasn't just angry crowds. Uh, In many places, the civic authorities themselves decided it's just not right to have a statue of a man who profited from the trading of slaves in our town square anymore. That was one big uh, thing that started happening in 2020. Uh, And in 2017, another protest movement was revived and went global. Following the exposure of accusations of sexual abuse against Harvey Weinstein, the hashtag MeToo was adopted by countless women around the world sharing stories of uh, sexual harassment or assault. There have been protests and rallies as well as a huge uh, evolving online presence. Uh, the idea was to create a sense of solidarity and give women courage to speak up so that people in general might have a sense of the magnitude of the problem. Uh, and a key feature of the dialogue flowing out of this movement has been the uh, the importance of consent in all sexual relationships and interactions. Um, there have been government-funded ads promoting consent and education in schools, trying to Empower girls and, and rein in boys with the message that you must ask permission and no means no. Now, both these movements have been big globally, but particularly in the Western world. Uh, and I think it would be fair to say, though, that they have not been associated with the church or Christianity in general. Uh, if anything, Christianity uh, as an institution has probably been seen more negatively because of the association of the Christian faith with that imperialism and the, the consequential slave trade of the, you know, the 16th to 19th century. Uh, and likewise, the past few years, decades, have seen some pretty dark stains brought out into the light in the institution of the church. Men in positions of religious authority abusing women and children and, or, or covering up the abuse done by others to protect the institution. So people rallying for equality and justice or campaigning for men to be held accountable for the treatment of women have largely not seen themselves as acting because of Christian convictions or in association with the church or anything like that. Uh, In fact, because of the way that these movements have been bound up in political ideology often, um, you know, with with deepening uh, polarisation and suspicion of the other, Christians have probably been more likely to be seen as as opposed to these movements, if, if anything, rightly or wrongly. And, and that's interesting, the fact that these movements have not been seen as Christian at all. Because when you strip back the political ideology and the complications around that, and you know, the fact that, particularly with the statues, there's a whole lot of vandalism going on, when you strip that stuff back, well, you can actually see a pretty direct line to, from two earlier radical protest movements led by the church itself and these recent movements. The truth is that the Christian faith, uh, you could even say the church itself, gave us our deeply ingrained values that lie at the heart of these movements. The freedom of all people and the necessity of accountability and consent in all sexual relationships. Now, for those of us who are coming along regularly, you'll know we're in the middle of a topical series uh, based on a book called The Air We Breathe by Glenn Scrivener, which explores the Christian foundations for some of the key values that we hold in the modern Western world, Um, often without appreciating how strange and unusual these ideas are around the world or or throughout history. Uh, So last week, we explored the foundations for equality and equal rights. We saw that our modern instinct Um, That all people have an equal inherent worth and dignity is built directly on the biblical teaching that all humans are created in the image of God with profound inherent dignity and that Christian message that God himself has become a human being forever in the person of Jesus. Humanity is special and all humans share in this specialness. Uh, And without this foundation... Uh, we're left with that slow, dawning realisation that our passionate commitment to equal rights for all is just an idea that we've come up with. There's no basis for imposing that view on other cultures, of other peoples, and there's no real objective reason why we should maintain it and, and live consistently with it at all costs. Now, this week, we're building on, on that foundation to reflect on two big revolutions that have happened in the Western world as a consequence of this revolutionary way of thinking about the nature and value of all human beings. Firstly, the condemnation, the rejection, the ultimate overthrow of the practice of slavery. And secondly, a radical reorientation of sexual ethics around the conviction that no one had the right to use anyone else for sexual gratification. Rather, the only kind of sexual relationship that was good and right was between mutually consenting husband and wife. Now, it's not your typical Mother's Day sermon, I I accept, but I think actually quite relevant. See, At the heart of these revolutions was an elevation of women and children to equal worth and significance uh, to how men were considered, uh, and a radical change in what was considered acceptable for men, uh, particularly sexually. And that has been a great blessing to women and to mothers in particular. Uh, We'll get get to that later. So firstly, the most obvious uh, outworking of the conviction that all people share an equal inherent dignity and worth, regardless of nationality, race, class, sex, and so on, is the rejection of slavery. Uh, After all, how can you treat a fellow human being as if they are a tool, a, a thing to be owned and used as you wish? Uh, This was in one sense obvious and clear to followers of Jesus from the outset and the practice of slavery was transformed and rejected quite quickly through the influence of the early church. And yet at the same time, slavery was was foundational to the Roman economy and society uh, as with almost every civilization. And so the political outlawing and overthrow of slavery is a relatively modern movement built on these Christian foundations but it most certainly began with the birth of the church. You see, initially, the, the Freedom Revolution was a revolution within the family of the church rather than an overt political movement. The, the early Christians didn't seek to overthrow the institutional practice of slavery in society at large. Uh, it, it probably would have been hard for them to even imagine or contemplate the possibility of a world without slavery at the time. Uh, In any case, what was originally a small, persecuted religious sect had hardly had the opportunity to demand society in general to do anything differently. Uh, Christians were focusing on being different, sharing the reason for their difference, and trying to avoid getting killed in the process, basically. Instead, what we find from the beginning of the gospel being preached and Christian communities forming is the transformation of relationships between slaves and masters and the relativization of all relationships within the church, including whether one happened to be uh, a slave or a wealthy, you know, high-born landowner. Uh, the, the, the foundation was the conviction that we looked at last week, that all people are equal in God's sight, all are created in his image with profound dignity and worth. Uh, so the social divisions of the Roman society, well, well they were false. They, they were a distortion of reality, and Christians rejected them. But on top of of those foundations was the the profound equalizing of relationships and and relativizing of worldly status in Christ as fellow believers. And the theological conviction is summed up powerfully in that short passage that was read out for us uh, from Galatians. There Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. When you come to faith in Christ, you, you take on a new identity as a follower of Jesus. You're a child of God, fellow heirs of the promise through faith. Uh, and we all take on this identity simply on the basis of our shared faith in Jesus. None of our typical worldly divisions make any difference to your access to Christ, to your identity in him, your significance and value in him. We are all one in Christ Jesus. No follower of Jesus is more important, more privileged, more valuable than any other. Uh, and so as Paul explains, in a sense, there's no such thing as a free Christian or a slave Christian, no such thing as a Gentile or a, or a Jewish Christian, or even a male or female Christian, in a sense. You you really are a Christian. Now, the idea wasn't to pretend that those differences didn't exist um, or, or have any significance. You know, you didn't stop being a male or a female when you became a Christian And that aspect of your identity still has significance for how we relate, even within the church. Uh, And likewise, it's not like when you became a Christian, you could just say to your master, you know, if you were a slave, oh, sorry, um, being a slave is against my religion now, so I'll be be going, thanks. (laughs) They might have some different ideas. And even if your master was a Christian, well, there were still social responsibilities. There were economic realities. You had debts to pay. What did change was how you viewed each other, how you treated each other, the significance of your social status as a slave for participation in the life of the church. In Christ, you are all brothers and sisters, all on equal footing, not slaves and masters. Whether you were a slave or not in this life didn't really matter when you looked at things from the perspective of God's coming kingdom. Life in the Christian community, it was a foretaste of the reality to come, it it expressed God's purposes from the beginning, the equality of all mankind. So that was the beginning of the end for slavery, really, but it, it starts as a mustard seed, just like the kingdom of God, within the family of the church. And then from this starting point, it grew and grew to be a great tree that gave shade to all. So many Christians chose not to participate in the practice of slavery themselves when and if they had opportunity they set slaves free they challenged the degrading and dehumanizing treatment of slaves bishops even called for for the abolition of slavery and as the number of christians grew and their influence on society grew with them attitudes towards the practice of slavery began to change and then there's a key point with the fall of the roman empire in 410 ad well after that slavery begins to disappear altogether in western europe the so-called dark ages you know the thousand years from about 500 a.d to 1500 a.d saw the complete christianization of countries in the western part of the empire um, italy to ireland everything north and south and, and through this supposedly dark time in history and um, for those of you who do um, get the book and read through it glenn has a whole chapter explaining that our enlightenment values of learning and progress are actually born through this medieval period. But anyway, um, through these supposedly dark ages, well, slavery effectively disappeared altogether in Europe. The belief that all humans were equal image bearers and all citizens, uh, regardless of rank or class, were fellow citizens of heaven, brothers and sisters in Christ. These ideas, convictions made sure of that. The practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper drew attention to the full and equal personhood of all people. And eventually it was formalized into law. It was illegal to enslave a fellow brother or sister, which, of course, in European countries at the time where you were baptized at birth, well, that pretty much meant everyone, didn't it? So with regard to slavery, at least, that the mustard seed had, had blossomed into a, a tree. Slavery had pretty much disappeared. Now, there were still all sorts of inequalities in society. Things were far from perfect. When we say the nations were Christianized, we don't mean that they became perfect expressions of the kingdom of God. But the conviction that all people shared an inherent dignity had shaped society at large. But then it all fell apart, didn't it? Around the turn of the 16th century, these supposedly Christian countries began to explore the the new world and old ambitions of empire were revived. The Spanish, the Portuguese, the British, and others, they all took part in conquering the Americas, and and the need for labor to work these new lands drove demand for slaves. The conviction that all people were equal had become superficial and brittle. See, initially, the radical equality within the church had challenged and shaped wider society, Now the overlap of church and state in Europe, well, that actually allowed them in their minds to justify the enslavement of other people who weren't European. You see, it was okay to buy or even enslave Africans because they weren't brothers and sisters in Christ. The fact that the equality of brothers and sisters was meant to point to the equality of all peoples, uh, you know, made in the image of God, well, that was forgotten or conveniently overlooked. No, it was the the philosophy of the ancient Greeks and the Romans that was revived to justify the need for slaves. As Plato said, some were just made to serve others. Not everyone was blind to the inconsistency of slavery with their faith. Objections were made more and more over time that no human being could be enslaved by another, regardless of their race or skin colour. William Wilberforce Led the charge within the ranks of the British government to put an end to the trade. And there were were many voices. And, And these voices had help from a surprising source. You see, rather than despising the faith of their captors, African American slaves often adopted the Christianity of their oppressors and saw something in their faith that many Europeans had become blind to. They saw the equality of all mankind in the opening pages of the Bible. They saw the threat of liberation and concern for the oppressed and the humble all through the Old Testament. They saw the radical equality amongst believers in the New Testament. And what they saw and what they sang about will open the eyes of many who had been blind and joined the voices of those Europeans and Americans who were arguing that Christians could not and should not enslave anyone. And so more and more began to campaign for the end of the slave trade. And what's important for us to realise is that it wasn't political ambition, it wasn't cultural ideology or Enlightenment thinking that drove these abolitionists. It was their faith. It was the biblical convictions reawakened and clarified with the help particularly of their brothers and sisters who had been slaves themselves. The slogan of the the British abolitionists um, beneath a chained man read, Am I not a man and a brother. Genesis demands that we all, that we treat all people as fellow human beings. Am I not a man? And the gospel demands we treat all believers as brothers and sisters. Am I not a brother? And in the end, this conviction, based on their Christian faith, won against the greed and and powerful economic forces that were fueling the slave trade the conviction that all people are created equal and share the same inalienable rights is not actually self-evident, despite what the founding documents of the American Republic tell us. Now, we're convinced of this because of the Bible rather than what seems self-evident in the world. And so when the, the foundations for this conviction are forgotten or denied, well, it doesn't take much, does it, for people in positions of power over others who seem different different enough from them to start treating them very differently. The overthrow of slavery and the racism that lies beneath it is an outworking of the Christian conviction that all are created equal in God's image, all are one in Christ Jesus. And we'll do well to remember these foundations now and into the future. So that's one big revolution through history, driven by the Christian conviction that all people are equal. And the other one is the revolution in sexual relationships, uh, and in particular, that necessity of mutual consent. Just like with slavery, the outworking of this in society, uh, and even within the church uh, over time, has been mixed and inconsistent. But the revolution was still profound, and we are still feeling the effects of it today. See, today we're, we're horrified, aren't we, at the idea of a person forcing themselves on someone else sexually especially if um, you're in a position of power over that person. We're horrified by that. Consent, meaningful mutual consent, is fundamental to our sense of what is right and wrong when it comes to sexual relationships. But that idea, that would have been nonsensical to the ancient Roman. There was just no category for someone consenting to a sexual encounter. The deeply ingrained hierarchy of Roman society shaped how they approached sexual relationships as much as it enabled them to justify enslaving another human being. There was no inherent worth or dignity in being human. Your worth, your dignity, your rights in as much as you know, anyone had rights, uh, well that was all derived from your status, your rank in society, your who you were in relationship to other people. And this status determined whether or not you had the right to use someone else sexually or were expected to submit to someone else's sexual advances. Um, Glenn Scrivener explains in the book, it was the status of your partner, not their consent, their age or their gender, that mattered. So sexual encounters with some groups of people were inappropriate, and would lead to losing face for both parties, so people, you know, married women or young unmarried women from the upper classes. Um, the chastity of these women needed to, to be protected, you know, not so much for their sake, um, but for the honour of their husband or their future husband. Uh, but individuals within other groups, individuals lower down the social ladder than you, well, they were fair game. Uh, you know, I'd, and so ideas about modesty and self-control we very different to how we think about it today. Modesty was a, a quality that a woman possessed if she had a certain status. If you were one of those upper-class virgins or married women, your modesty was a thing to be respected. And self-control, well, that was something a man possessed if he gave that respect, restraining from sexual encounters with women who were off, off the table. But beyond that, you weren't really expected to restrain yourself at all. See, uh, apparently, um, Glenn points out, whilst there were 25 words in Latin for a prostitute, there was not a single word to describe a male virgin. That just wasn't a category. They didn't have a word for it. And that tells you a lot, doesn't it, about the sexual ethics of the Roman world. And against this backdrop, Christians approach sexuality very, very differently. And two things motivated a complete rejection of the cultural assumptions around sexuality, and led to a a profoundly different approach. Firstly, there there is this foundational idea that all people possessed an inherent uh, equal worth and dignity. So just like it undermined the practice of slavery, this conviction, it, it directly contradicted the assumption that one person had the right to use another person for sex because they were superior to them socially. The new value that all people were equal, well, it undermined, it dismantled the Roman sexual ethic. It paved the way for the idea that both parties had to give consent, regardless of their gender, their age, or their social position. One of the most um, culturally radical passages in the New Testament, you, you might miss it, but it's the first paragraph of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul is speaking to husbands and wives and addressing the question of whether, as some were saying, it's best to avoid sex altogether. And Paul says, no, married couples should be honouring their vows and not depriving each other. He explains from verse 3, the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. Now that's not culturally shocking. That's a statement Paul would be expected to make. Of course, the wife yields authority over her body to her husband. But then Paul drops his bombshell. In the same way, husbands do not have authority, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Now, Paul is not talking at this point about authority and submission or who's the head of the household or anything like that. He's talking about mutual consent and obligation. Neither of you have the right to demand sex from your partner nor deny your partner. Rather, as Paul goes on, do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for, and for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Now this was a radically different way of approaching sexual relationships. The, the dynamics of, of gender and social class and power uh, were, were totally different. What mattered was whether you were married to this person or not, and that was it. And that leads to the second big idea that shaped the the radical way Christians approach sexuality. Sex was special, and according to God, was to be confined to one particular relationship, the lifelong union of one man and one woman in marriage. Uh, In the passage that we read out earlier from Matthew's Gospel, we saw Pharisees, you know, religious teachers with strict standards, they approached Jesus and asked him whether it was right to divorce your wife for any and every reason. In response, Jesus points them back to God's purposes revealed in the opening chapters of the Bible. Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning, the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, do you see what Jesus does in this passage? He's quoting from both Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, and he's linking them together logically. In Genesis 1, God creates us male and female, charging us to be fruitful and multiply, i.e., have babies, raise them up. And therefore, says Jesus, for this reason, to fulfill this responsibility, God gave us marriage, according to Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. See, Jesus links together the fact that we've been created as male and female, having and raising children, sexual intimacy, and the permanent marriage relationship. Now, in our culture, we've, we've lost the conviction that these things are meant to be bound together. But Jesus makes it clear that God's intention for them is to be fundamentally connected. They belong together. And, and so one clear implication, according to Jesus, is what God has joined together, let no one separate. Divorce is not part of what God intends for his people. And when the religious leaders push back, Jesus digs in and Moses allowed divorce as a concession because of the hardness of your hearts. But that, that's not the intention from the beginning. And then his own disciples say to him, Whoa, well, if it's that important, if we're really not meant to divorce, maybe we should just not get married in the first place. And what Jesus says next is really significant for our understanding of the new sexual ethic that Christians would introduce to the wider world. Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. Eunuchs were those who had been castrated, usually slaves who were required to serve maybe a noble woman, and so their master didn't want them to be a sexual threat. And what Jesus is saying is if you don't get married, uh, then basically the only option is living like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Now Jesus is not saying he's a fan of people castrating their slaves. He's saying you're either faithfully married in a lifelong, mutually consenting sexual relationship with one person from the opposite sex, or you don't engage in any sexual relationship at all. You live like a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. According to Jesus, these are your options. Uh, Now, the answer to no divorce for the Roman would have been to maintain his marriage for the sake of reputation, but to satisfy his sexual urges wherever he wanted, with anyone he wanted, below him on the social ladder. The Christian ethic was very different. There was no such thing as casual or insignificant sex. No, sex is special. God intends for us to only engage in sex in marriage. You had no right to a sexual encounter with anyone else. And you can see this, the way that this dramatically changed the expectations for men in particular, can't you? Not only did women share an equal dignity with men and couldn't be used for sex regardless of their social class, But God expected men to restrain themselves from any sexual encounter other than with their wife. No more double standards. Men were to be held to account. And that's why um, Glenn Scrivener, he draws a kind of ironic parallel between the sexual revolution of the 1960s with this first revolution of the AD 60s, you know, or thereabouts. You see, both sexual revolutions were about removing double standards, weren't they? Between men and women when it came to attitude and expectations around sex and abstinence. It's just that in the 1960s, the idea was that women should be as free as men to engage in you know, whatever casual sexual encounters they wanted to. Whereas in the first sexual revolution, 2,000 years ago, the idea was for men to be as restrained as women were expected to be. This Christian revolution in sexuality, it tied men to their sexual partners and to the children that came from that union. That's the point. That's what God intends. He created sex, marriage, raising children to all go together. It was and is a good thing, especially for the women and children involved. You see, the, the sexual revolution that came through Christianity, <clears throat> it was due both to the equality that they gave to all people and the high view that they gave to sex. Not as an idol, not the way that our culture kind of worships sexual fulfillment today, but treating it with the significance that God does. And these two things together, they dismantled the sense of entitlement that men had to use women or children or slaves or anyone below them socially for sexual gratification. The original value of consent was built on both the equal dignity of all people and the specialness, the seriousness of, uh, of a sexual encounter with another person, the conviction that there was really only one kind of relationship where that was appropriate. Our modern value of consent, you know, it's built on this revolution, but sadly it's lost sight of that second piece of, of the puzzle, the fact that, that sex is significant. We demand consent. We tell young men to take it very seriously. No means no. But then at the same time, we tell them sex is insignificant. It's, it's just for fun. You don't need to worry about all those old-fashioned restrictive rules. There's an inherent con- inconsistency, isn't there, that will continue to undermine messaging about consent in our culture until we revive a real sense of the significance of sex alongside the equal dignity of all people. So two big revolutions that changed the foundations of society, which both flowed out from this Christian equality revolution, freedom and consent. Within the family of the church, a new kind of society had formed where social rankings didn't matter. Everyone was of equal worth and dignity. And so people, especially people who were vulnerable to others in the world, they found a refuge in the church. Our our deeply held values of freedom and consent today, our instinct and desire to see vulnerable people protected and treated with equal dignity, our desire for those in positions of power to be held to account and to know that they can't use people as they wish. These values, these assumptions, are gifts to our world from the Christian revolution. And the more that we can hold on to the basis for these values, well, I think the more that we will hold on to the values themselves, and live them out. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we do thank you for the clarity that you give us in your word about the equal dignity of all people. Uh, and we thank you for the way that has changed our world uh, for the better. We pray that you'll help us uh, to appreciate uh, these, these truths and the, the implications, the significance of it, and... Uh, to live them out consistently and uh, like the early church to be a place of refuge uh, for those who might otherwise be used and abused and we pray this in jesus name amen